0: If you have your Bible with you, please open it to the third chapter of the book of Galatians. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 22 this morning. Paul begins this section of text with a very simple question. Why then the law? given that the promise is irrevocable, given that the promise is the standard to which everything else is held up to, given that the promise cannot be thwarted by the law, given that the promise is central for everything that God had said throughout Scripture, the question becomes, why then would God even give the law? For many of us, this leads into a question of, not only why would God give the law in that intermittent time in between Moses and Jesus, but then why or what Does the law hold for us today? Why did he keep it written down for us? Why do we still have it in our scripture? We are trying to engage you guys to read through the Bible in a year, right? And as we do that, we post videos online from uh, a website that's trying to help explain scripture. And we've come up to the book of Leviticus. But the question for many of us is why should we even read the book of Leviticus? It's literally about the law. It's nothing but the law. Why should we go to the book of Leviticus and read about a law which, frankly, only curses us? We should avoid it for our salvation. It's from a bygone era. It has little meaning for us that it would have had for them. So the question, not just for Paul, and why does God give the law, but for us is why do we need to know the law at all? Does Scripture, every blessed word of Scripture, have actual impact and importance for us Even as we read this morning from Psalm 1, Blessed is a man, the very first words of the book of Psalms, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Do we echo those sentiments? When we read those, did we not do the responsive reading because we didn't want you to lie about it? on those would that have been difficult for you to think that the law of the lord is actually a delight for us or that it should produce in us meditation and thinking and response or is it something for us to press off into the past and to work our way beyond of course the answer to this comes back very clearly that that cannot possibly be what we are to do with the law paul wrote in second timothy 3:16 through 17 all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. When he wrote that, he wasn't writing about his letters. He didn't primarily mean the book of Galatians when he wrote that. He meant the Old Testament. And he meant every word of the Old Testament is useful, is profitable for you. The question becomes today, how is it profitable for us? Why, then, did God give the law? Let us look at Galatians 3 and try to come up with some answers for this. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 19. Why, then, the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law, then, contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And this is the word of our God. Why then the law? What is the good of the law? What is the purpose of the law for us? What is the nature of the law for us, first we would want to point out that the law points to Christ's provision. The law points to Christ's provision. There are two passages in here that are very enigmatic and very condensed. The first one is, right away in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. Paul is clearly getting at the purpose of the law here. Why did God add the law? He had already given the promise What is the purpose of him then adding the law? The law, as he's already talked about, cannot contravene the promise. It can't undo the promise. So why does he give it at all? And Paul's answer is very short. It's simply because of transgressions or on account of transgressions. Generally speaking, there have been four options to this. Now, as we think through what those options are, we need to say that there could have been more than these options for why God added the law. And certainly, some of these are going to apply, but they won't apply well to what we have in the book of Galatians. Paul seems to be fairly specific here. So what are those four things? Well, first, it could have been that the law was given simply to define transgression. It was given to give us a context for understanding what does it mean to go against God's will. As Paul states himself in Romans 5.13, Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not counted where there is no law. That is, in order to know how you were transgressing God, we were so ruined by the fall that we needed God to tell us what was right and what was wrong. Now, certain things can be known through your conscience. Most people realize in all cultures, before the law, after the law, that murder is wrong. But not all think that lying is wrong. Not all think that bearing false witness is wrong. Not all think that stealing is necessarily wrong. And so, the law comes and it helps to define for us what is actually right and what is actually wrong. This is a helpful feature of the law, but it's unlikely that that is what Paul means here. You'll notice that immediately after he says, it was added because of transgressions, that whatever purpose God had for adding the law, this particular purpose that Paul cares about, was finished at the coming of Christ. He says, until, until this purpose of the law was there, the law was added for a reason, Until the offspring should come, to whom the promise was made. Now, what that means is whatever the purpose was, it ends with the coming of Christ. But there's no reason to think that defining what sin is is a, a feature of the law that's now over. We don't think that we don't need to define sin based on what the law was anymore. We still believe that the law has a defining function when it comes to sin. Now, there might be some people that say, well, really the only major sin that you can have today is not believing. Unbelief is really the only sin that stands. But that's just really bad thinking. That's not the only sin that stands. The New Testament is replete with sins. Even Paul himself in this book defines what is good and what is not good by the law. So when we go back to Galatians chapter 5, which we will get to in 18 months when we get there we will we will read that there are fruit of the spirit right fruit of the spirit are love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law what makes them good for paul what makes these things right what makes them a fruit that is born by the spirit there isn't a law in scripture that says you shouldn't love one another there isn't a law that speaks against patience the law never implores you be impatient And so he says these are good things. We know that they're good things because the law says them. So while the law does define transgressions, it is unlikely that that's what Paul means here. Another option is that the law was given to restrict transgressions. That it was given to the nation of Israel because all the nations around them were just pitifully in the midst and mire of sin, and God wanted to keep his people from it, and so he gives them the law, so that they will know what is right and what is wrong, and then they will follow and do what is right. Now it's clear that this seems to be a point of the law. After all Psalm one nineteen, nine through eleven says this How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That word is not just general words. That is the law. David is praising the law for helping him kind of keep his way. And it makes sense in this sort of in-between time that we're speaking of. The problem is that the idea that the law actually restricts sin is really counter to a great deal of what Paul has to say about the law, especially in the book of Galatians. Look down in verse 21. It's something that we will come back to. But listen to how he speaks about the law. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That is, you can actually do, if you were alive before God, you could actually do what the law requires of you. The problem is that the law has no power to make you alive. There's nothing in the law, there's nothing in the written code of the law that allows you to come alive before God and actually do what he wants. Other places indicate that the law simply does not restrain sin this way. The law is powerless. Not only will we have that in Galatians 4, but we also have already have it in Galatians 3. Why is it that the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith? The one who does them shall live by them. The reason why the one who does them shall live by them is against faith is because you can't live in the law. The law is powerless. To highlight this, the third possibility is that the law was given not to restrict transgressions, but to actually increase them. Paul says this in Romans 5, 20 through 21. Now the law came to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our lord and so the law came to show and to demonstrate how truly sinful people were to show the depravity of their sin but not just to show it but to increase it so that when grace comes it might be all the more great by contrast. And while this is possible, it doesn't seem to fit any of the meanings that Paul is kind of pulling out in chapter 3. So, if that is not the possible, the best possible one, what would we land on? We would land on the fourth option, which is the scripture or that law was given to deal with transgressions. Deal with transgressions. So, most of the time when we come to Paul, there is one gaping, huge hole in how he talks about the law, and that is that the law was actually present not just to condemn people, but also to help the nation of Israel with their sin. So even as we've, I've talked about our plan to read through the Bible in a year, this coming week we're going to be reading into Leviticus. Leviticus is the central book of the five in the Pentateuch. So the first five books, the Torah of the Old Testament— Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus comes right in the center of that. And right in the center of the center is Leviticus 16, which speaks of the Day of Atonement. The day when Aaron goes into the tabernacle. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He not only cleanses the Holy of Holies, he cleanses himself. And he makes atonement for the sins of Israel. We Read this in Leviticus 16, verses 20 through 22. And when he has made an end, that is, Aaron has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Before this, the book of Leviticus instructs Aaron to take two goats, one of which he will, he will use the blood of to purify not only himself, but he will purify the, the tabernacle and the holy of holies. And after he has done that, the second goat which will live, he will put all of the sin of the people on, and symbolically, that goat will take their sin away into the wilderness. He will take it away from the very presence of the Lord. And God calls this, the Old Testament calls this, atonement that the people of God can now exist something in the presence can they can they're allowed to live in the land they're allowed to have their sins forgiven they're allowed to stand in the presence of God because God has atoned for their sin the question that comes to us then is if the old testament allowed for the cleansing of people from their sin if it allowed the people to be forgiven for their sin why do we need christ let us turn then to hebrews 10 verses 1 through 10 in hebrews 10 verses 1 through 10 we read this we'll probably stop at verse 4 for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities now t- kind of put this in context. In Hebrews chapter 9, he talked about this tabernacle and the, the way it was set up, and including the Holy of Holies. And the author of the book of Hebrews said, listen, these things were a pattern of the heavenly reality. So the tabernacle itself is a replica, is, is a shadow of the greater reality which is in heaven. And he said, Aaron went into the replica, Aaron went into the shadow, but Jesus has gone into the true Holy of Holies in order to mediate for us. Unlike Aaron, who went into this fake, sort of, it was a real tabernacle, but it wasn't the real Holy of Holies. It was an earthly replica of the Holy of Holies. Jesus himself has gone into the true, heavenly Holy of Holies for us. And so he says, since the law is just a shadow of that, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, "...maked perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered, or excuse me, otherwise they would, uh, would they not have ceased to have been offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. Listen to verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Now, does that mean that the Old Testament was lying to us when it said Aaron would make atonement for sins? No. That word atonement also means cover. Okay. What you end up with is this idea, and atonement's kind of a bad idea too, because he is making atonement for the Holy of Holies. He's making atonement for the sanctuary. He's making atonement for the building. Unless we are now thinking that buildings can sin and they need to be made right with God we are thinking that Aaron is doing something completely different. He's not atoning so much as he is covering up the pollution and the iniquity of the people of God. And so he purifies the temple. He makes atonement for it by covering it literally with blood. He takes that bull's blood and he splatters it on his robes. He splatters it on the altar. He splatters it on the Holy of Holies in order to cover it. It's almost as if God is looking at it and he sees filth and impurity and the blood that covers it then allows him to look upon the people with favor. He doesn't see their iniquity anymore, but he sees the blood, the life that covers them. But what the author of Hebrews is then getting at is although it covers them, it doesn't cleanse them. It doesn't actually take away their sin. You see, it just covers it. It allows God to live with them. It allows him to give them life for another year. But it doesn't actually take away their guilt. It doesn't actually take away their sin. The blood of bulls and goats are then offered every year. Every year, Aaron has to cleanse himself. Every year, Aaron has to cleanse the Holy of Holies so that he can enter into those Holy of Holies so that every year he can make atonement for sins because those sins aren't actually gone. They're still there. They still cling onto the people. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is the same point that Paul is making, only condensed. What the law couldn't fully do, what the law points at, but couldn't fully do is take away the guilt of people. It couldn't take away the sins of people. Because of that, Christ is different. Christ has taken away their sins. The law points to his full and final sacrifice. The law cannot do what it seems to promise to do, but only Christ can do that. And year after year, as the people go before the Lord and have their guilt sort of covered, now we know that Christ has fully taken that away. Listen to how Paul talks in Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So his righteousness, his goodness, his qualities, and even his provision of that righteousness to us is apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is one of the ways the law bears witness to it. The law tells us that God should take away our sins, but the law cannot do that. Listen to how Paul then speaks further down in this passage. God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his, define, his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, not he had forgiven them. But because the blood of bulls and goats covered the people, he simply passed them over. But now, as he puts his son on the cross and kills his son, so that we might have forgiveness, he is no longer passing over sins, but he is showing himself to be just. That he hasn't just passed over these sins with the blood of bulls and goats. He is incredibly just. A man's sin has a man's death. But at the same time, he is the justifier of the one who puts faith in Christ. the work of the law is at least in part to show the provision of Christ. Secondly, the law points to Christ's presence. The law points to Christ's provision and the law points to Christ's presence with us. And again, we have a fairly enigmatic statement at the bottom of verse 19. He says, The law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There have been many different versions of what's going on here. I'm going to give you my version of what is going on here. It is not probably the definitive version, but it's the best I can do. So just kind of hang in with me. Uh, if you went back to the 1800s, a man named Lightfoot would have tried to calicate all of the different versions of this interpretation of this particular passage, and he came up with 300, uh, which someone rounded up to 430 to make one for every year that Moses. Uh, between Moses and the Exodus, okay? Uh, So there are a number of them out there. It's a very difficult verse. What is he getting at? Why does he mention this? Let's work through what it means for the angels and the intermediary to be there. First, seems a little bit weird to talk about angels being the ones who provided the law, but this was a long-standing Jewish tradition, one that is backed by New Testament evidence and Old Testament evidence. So we don't have time to go to these passages, but if you went to Deuteronomy 33 two, Psalm 68, 17, you would see that there's an implication that angels were present at the giving of the law. Stephen, before he is stoned at the very end of his speech in Acts 7, talks about the angels providing the law for Israel. Hebrews 2.2 2 implies the same thing. This was just part and parcel of much of Jewish tradition. And then it says through, uh, the ESV doesn't quite say this, but through the hands of a mediator. That is, that it was given to Moses. Moses carried down in his hands the tables of the Ten Commandments. So if you are reading this, you, you kind of get the sense that there is a four-step process to go from God to, To his people. God gives the law to the angels, who gives the law to Moses, who gives the law to the people. You'll notice how far away the people are from God in that process. They have a great distance from the very presence of God. Now, this is quite interesting and a little bit confusing because that was not what God had initially planned. Listen to Exodus 19. This is before the giving of the Ten Commandments. God has pulled his people near to Mount Sinai. He has delivered them through the Red Sea. And he's going to call Moses up to give him instructions. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 3. Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountains, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. There's two things to note about that. He says, I have called you to myself. And interestingly enough, at the very outset of the nation of Israel, what does he say the nation is supposed to be? They're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. That is, I'm drawing you to myself. What is a priest for? A priest in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it doesn't matter where you go, a priest mediates God to people. He brings people to God and takes God to the people. He says, you will be my priest. The entire nation will mediate my own presence through them to the nations. The nations will know of me because of you. Later on, in verse 12 of that same chapter, God sets a perimeter up around the mountain. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. He says, I'm going to put a perimeter around the mountain. It's going to be holy, so you can't touch it. You can't come near it. And if somebody does come near it, if they breach that barrier, you can't touch him. He is so defiled now that you have to stone him from a distance or shoot him with an arrow. Shoot probably doesn't mean a 12 gauge, but probably an arrow at that point in time, right? So you are to shoot him. You cannot touch him lest you be defiled. But listen to what verse 13 says. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up the mountain. So the people are barricaded from coming up, but when they hear the trumpet blast, they ought to ascend up the mountain to be priests to their God, to be in God's presence fully and functionally as Moses was, to be in the presence of God. But afterward, the people were consecrated for three days. They hear the trumpet of God. They hear the Mountain thunder, they hear and feel it shake, they see the smoke. And the people, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, it says, the people backed up from the mountain. They didn't ascend and go up as the Lord had commanded them, they backed away from the mountain. And they looked at Moses and they said, Moses, you need to go talk to God for us because we cannot stand before him. Now that seems pious and it seems holy. But it's only after that that God starts to talk to Aaron about being a priest. Every aspect of the law, from the fact that they even talk about Aaron can only go before the Lord one time, once a year. And only Aaron, only the high priest can do that. The very idea that the law is given in such a fashion implies that there is a great distance between God and his people. He was meant to bring the people to him. He wanted to have them be an entire nation of priests, a kingdom of priests for himself. But because of their reticence to do what he has asked, because they were afraid of God in his commandments, they backed away from him and no longer would they be priests, but they themselves would need priests. And the law itself would give them those priests. God's true presence cannot be mediated. That's why he says the Presence of a mediator implies distance, right? It implies more than one. You've got steps to get from the people of God to God. But God is one. If they are really, truly in the midst of God, if they are really, truly in the presence of God, they can't have God's presence mediated to them. The mediating of God's presence, God's presence going through several different people means that he's not actually with you. If you are going to be in the presence of God, you have to be in the presence of the one God, And therefore, what the law sets up, Jesus finishes. We enter through Jesus into the very presence of God. We do not need priests to mediate his presence with us. We do not need anything between us and God, for Jesus has opened the curtain for all time. Not only is this... Talked about in the book of Hebrews, but also in the book of Matthew. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And when he died, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Symbolically, there is no more, no more separation between God and man. Through Jesus Christ, that temple veil has been ripped and sundered in two. The law implies that we ought to be able to get near to God but it always keeps you at a distance. That points to one who will actually bring the full and unadulterated presence of God to you and you to him, and that is through the man, Jesus Christ. The law gives the expectation of God's presence, but it can never truly provide it. The law points to Christ's presence. Third, the law points to Christ's power. It points to Christ's power. Paul says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The one who lives, the one who is alive to God, not dead. If you are dead, in this manner of speaking, in Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. You cannot do what God requires of you. If you are dead, you can't do the very things that God has commanded you to do. But if the law had been able to give you life, if by reading a law, it was able to make you alive, then you could do what the law asked. What Paul is pointing at is the problem is your sinful flesh. You can't do what the law requires. You can't do what the law asks you to do. The law is, is almost like a science fiction book in this case. You know that there is destruction coming to the earth. And so, Aliens, for whatever reason, have sent you instructions on how to build a rocket and and location of a place where you can go to get away from everything. And so you build the rocket. You know where you have to go, but they don't give you any fuel to get there. You die anyway. The law can tell you what you need. The law can tell you where you need to go. But the law cannot give you life to get there. The law is only fueled by your flesh. This is what Paul says in the book of Romans, He talks about the fact that it is the very essence of the law that it uses our flesh to power itself. And what the law couldn't do because it was powered by flesh, the God did in his Son. He overcame the deficiencies that we have. The law itself points to Christ's power in our life. He says that the law couldn't give life. But, in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That is, sin was a power over you. Because you couldn't overcome the power of sin, the law is of no help to you. And so what it does is it points to one who can be of help to you. The law tells you you need to go here, you need to be able to do these things, you need to be righteous before God. But the law can't give those things to you. It points you to one who can give those things to you. That one is Jesus Christ. Scripture imprisoned it so that, if you look up in verse 8, the scripture has already been mentioned sort of as an active presence and force. Indeed, even as a person. Scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, shall all the nations be blessed. Because it foresaw that justification, what did it do? In Scripture, everything is imprisoned under sin. No one has the ability to come to God on their own. No one has the ability to make themselves right. No one has the ability to do what God requires of them because sin has been shown by Scripture to be a power under which everyone buckles. No one overcomes it. And so God has given Christ to allow us to overcome it. Faith in Christ alone has the power to free you from sin. Faith in Christ alone has the power to make you alive. Faith in Christ alone has the power to justify you. Before God. Faith in Christ alone has the power to make you a child of Abraham. Faith in Christ alone has the power to free you from the penalty of the law. Faith in Christ alone has the power to give you the promised spirit. Faith in Christ alone has power. And no action, no deed, no progress in holiness through the law will ever give you power for these things. Finally, the law points to Christ's purpose. The law points to Christ's purpose. What we have covered so far is Paul's reasons for giving the law. The law is meant to drive you to Christ. But we live on the other side. We already know Christ. We're not tempted to run to the law. We have Christ in our life already. We know that he is the answer to all these questions. Why then, again, the question comes back to us, should we go and should we read the law? Here I would tell you that the law points to Christ's purpose. The background of the law tells us what we should expect because the law is the very revelation of God that points to something more full and more beneficial for us that is to come. By listening to the law, we should be able to know what that thing is when we see it. Listen, you can read the New Testament and you can leave with all sorts of purposes for Jesus. It's easy to see Jesus care for people. He, he loved people. He loved to help them and he loved to care for them. It's easy to see that care and to think that Jesus is here to make us feel better. So we focus on our felt needs, emotions, and happiness and Jesus becomes nothing more than a therapist to us. It's easy to see Jesus' desire to bless people and so we then focus on worldly blessings, on money, influence, and success. And Jesus simply becomes something of a rich uncle to us. It's easy to see Jesus care for the poor and the downtrodden. So we focus on freeing the oppressed. We focus on justice and social concerns, and Jesus becomes nothing more than a political activist for us. It's easy to see Jesus' willingness to die for what he thinks is right, and so we can easily focus then on determination and valor. And Jesus becomes nothing more than an example for us. But if we pay attention to the law, if we pay attention to what it says we ought to expect, if it pays attention, if we pay attention, to where it's pointing towards, we can see that while all of these things are true, all of these things, being as good as they are, are not the full purpose for what Christ came. He is, of course, a therapist, helping and comforting us in the spirit. He is, of course, a rich, rich brother who will give us every blessing in heaven. He is, of course, a political threat working against the powers of the world. And he is a great teacher. He does help us and explain to us morality and ethics. And he is, of course, the most excellent example of how we ought to live our lives in love. But he is, above all those things, a redeemer of his people who has freed them from sin. And as good as all of those things are, all of them, every one of them, depends on the ability of Jesus Christ to take away your sin, to take away the penalty of sin, to take away the power of sin, to take away sin from your lives. His therapy only matters if he can eliminate the problem of sin. His blessings only matter if they bring us into the presence of God lest all those blessings rust and melt away. His politics only matter insofar as he can actually build a kingdom of righteous people. His teaching only matters if we have the power to actually follow through with it. His example only matters if a fate better than death awaits us. All of these good things about Jesus are not the central thing. The central thing is that he has come to bear the sins of a nation. The central thing is that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the law, understanding the law rightly, understanding the central portion of the law, even as we've discussed in Leviticus 16, helps to form the basis for our understanding of what is really wrong with the world and how Jesus is really the right answer for it. And without that, We will always be deformed in our thinking of the gospel. The law helps to explain what we have come to know in Christ. And therefore, it is invaluable for our study and our instructions, for how we are to build ourselves up as people of righteousness, doing good works. What should that look like? The law helps us understand. It doesn't tell us what we have to do, but it tells us who Christ is. This is why Jesus is our good news Not because he's a good teacher, not because he's a good therapist, but primarily all of those things are true because he is a great redeemer of his people. If we read the law correctly, if we understand it well, then we can rightly turn to Christ and say, Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin and by his death I live again. Let us pray. Jesus our Lord, you are good. We do not mean to downplay all of the other things that you give to us. You are the best of teachers. You do care about us and try to comfort us with your presence. You do care about the poor and the downtrodden. And you have much to say about justice. You do seek to pour out your blessings upon us. All of these things are good and true. But Jesus, we know you first and foremost as a lamb who lays down his life for us, who makes a sacrifice which is better than the sacrifices of lambs and goats because you have taken away our sin. You have made a way for God not to penalize us for what we have done wrong and so very wrong at that. We know you as our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who has led us out of the entrapment to sin and has given us birth into your kingdom. For this we praise you, and it is by this that we know you best. Be with us, then. Let us fully understand you as Redeemer. Let us be those who place their hope and their trust that your sacrifice and your sacrifice alone can make us right with God, that no law can do that. No work that we do can do that. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord, for you alone, are our Redeemer. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.